with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about the global banking turmoil. What's next for it? And we will also take a look at this year's Boal Forum for Asia. And now let's begin with our top story. American Bank First Citizens has agreed to buy failed lender Silicon Valley Bank. First Citizens will acquire SVB from the United States financial regulator, which controls its assets. So what's the next for the Silicon Valley Bank and the global banking system? The turmoil in financial markets over the past two weeks caused a great concern for economic prospects. So what's the outlook for the global economy? For more on this, join us on the line now, uh, Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So Aina, first of all, what's the next for Silicon Valley Bank now that it has been bought out? by first citizens? Well, I mean, it's, there's nothing next. It's just a bank now. Uh, hopefully they'll put in place uh, the kind of safeguards that were not present uh, by the former management. Um, and that means having more cash on hand, uh, not investing in long-term treasuries. All that has basically uh, you know, been cleaned off the books. So they're just starting with um, a bunch of depositors in a bunch of locations. So there's, there's no, you know, there'll, there'll be an asterisk next to the name in history uh, because of what happened. Mm. And so then the ripple effect from this uh, financial turmoil has already spread globally. And some analysts even warned of a 2008-style banking crisis. Do you think it's really safe now for the banking sector? And the big difference is that what caused the current crisis is not the same as the 2008 financial crisis. Um, back then, it was mostly because of financial derivatives and the declining housing market. And this time, it's mostly because of a true bank run and a mismatch in their asset and liabilities. So for this kind of technical issue, it's easier to be contained. Um, the global market was kind of in a panic mode when the Federal Reserve um, stepped in and arranged a line of uh, bailout options for the bank. But over time, it seems that uh, the market has come down. So I don't think the panic is there yet. Mm. So then what do you think is the long-term effect of the Silicon Valley Bank or the SVB collapse? So what effect would it have on the lending and who will be hit? Um, for the tech industry, it will deepen the so-called tech winter um, because SVB was one of the few banks willing to banking those smaller high-risk tech firms uh, out of uh, the, uh, the tech town companies from the Silicon Valley. About 70% of them I IPO'd uh, one way or another with the help of SVB. But in the future, there will be less uh, appetite from the banking sector to help this kind of high-rise emerging industry. Um, there's also a wide loss of confidence in the banking system and how far the government will go to rescue the bank. So in the long term, people would worry more about prolonged inflation and potential financial vulnerability in smaller banks. Mm. So Aina, so people are now calling for government actions or regulators to do something. So what do you think could the regulators do to fix the problem or to stabilize the financial situation? 
Well, they, they, they have to take appropriate responses in terms of uh, regulation. There's, there should not be one regulation, rules all. I mean, larger banks are quite different from um, and medium and smaller banks. Uh, they have to have the appropriate regulations at each side. And that's, that's basically SVB um, fell between the cracks. They, if they had a, a few more billion on, on top of their valuation, uh, they would have been sub- subject to these kind of stress tests. But because they're a few billion off, thanks to uh, Donald Trump, uh, they escaped. And uh, therefore, no one was looking over the books, which were clearly, clearly uh, not being run right. Uh, 54% of your, uh, of your assets in long-term bonds, which were rapidly uh, going down. But uh, there, there's also, we, we keep talking about you know, uh, banking regulation, but th- this, that was only part of the problem. That, that would have given you a warning. The real issue here is the um, actions of the Fed uh, by raising interest rates on what were supposed to be, you know, the rock solid um, treasury uh, that were held by everybody, you know, grandmas, pension funds, you name it. Mm. They created toxic assets and the lost value. I mean, SVB uh, went into uh, default because they had to sell off $20 billion dollars. Uh, worth of um, uh, treasuries, and they lost two billion, roughly ten percent of the value. And that's being—that's not a loan to them. That's everybody who is ho- holding these long-term treasuries, which is the largest, um, you know, depository of wealth. Mm. So there is more to come on this. Mm. So Dan, so Anna mentioned that the real issue is the action of the Fed. What do you think? Um, the action of the Fed is absolutely the biggest the trigger. And the global financial system is overly dependent on the Fed, especially in Europe. Uh, for China, its monetary cycle is more or less independent, so it adds this extra layer of cushion. Um, but we can see that the Federal Reserve has no intention to tighten the regulation for smaller banks to an extreme level, um, because overregulation they know also is a risk. But now it just seems this inefficient uh, regulatory framework for smaller banks has caused people to have long-term concerns about how to do business with them in the future. Mm. So I know we've seen the SVB, the Credit Suisse, the Deutsche Bank, the past two weeks turmoil in financial markets were of great concern for the global economic prospects. And the World Bank even warned of a lost decade for global economic potential. What do you make of that? Is that a lost decade in the making for the global economy? Well, it could be. I mean, obviously, with the high levels of global debt, um, you know, the pandemic, um, a, it was a cyclical collapse uh, that you know was due for a long period of time. Uh, these are all factors in it. I don't believe that is going to be a last decade. I think there is a countervailing factor, which is going to be uh, electronic um, or EE currencies, um, and also the uh, rise of uh, internet banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the idea of, that you need a bricks and mortar place, uh, which is very expensive and large buildings full of people shuffling paper uh, in order to make loans is nonsense. Uh, there are much more efficient ways of doing that. And uh, I think that's really the hope going forward. It's not, uh, you know, depending on you know, what has failed you and is basically obsolete, but what you can develop in its place that's more efficient. Mm. So, Dan, actually, what do you think about this uh, current situation of the global trade, investment and consumption? 
Uh, in the past decade, we have seen this rolling back of global trade and investment. Uh, in about 2011, um, the global share, uh, the global trade as a share of GDP has reached its highest point, but since then steadily declined until last year. And in terms of global investment, uh, the high point was reached in 2008 and also went through this downward spiral. So it seems that it's not entirely wrong to say the world is going to be more regional and more conservative. Part of it is political, but part of it is also because of the change in industrial structure. And as a result, we also see this slowdown in global consumption, uh, not just in China, but in Europe and the U.S. as well. Um, but so far, we haven't seen really anything that has a uh, big enough push to put the world back to its pre-2007 trend. And so, Aina, so the World Bank said uh, uh, the most promising routes to higher growth were ensuring a big boost in investment and labor force participation. So what do you think? Well, I mean, they're, they're using the old tactics to fight a new war. And mm. uh, quite frankly, it, uh, they, t they talk about labor participation, but what you really mean is jobs. And beyond jobs, it's disposable income. You're not going to have an increase in uh, real uh, economic terms uh, beyond necessities unless there's disposable income. And so much of today's economy, especially in the developed world, is in this tertiary area. It's, it's services, uh, whether it's restaurants or white-collar services, et cetera, healthcare. Um, so you, you hear them kind of using the same old ideas of labor force participation investment. Yes, investment is good, but what kind of investment? Uh, China has been championing infrastructure investment, which has had an impact. Uh, in the U.S., they talk about uh, commercial investment that has not had an impact. All right, you start looking at a lot of the projects uh, around the world where uh, multinational corporations from the U.S. or wherever have gone in. What has been the economic impact of that? It has not been that great, whereas infrastructure, which allows small and medium-sized businesses to thrive because they can be connected to market markets efficiently, especially with the Internet, those have shown a tremendous potential. So uh, uttering these phrases and, you know, it's like it's a little prayer is not the, the issue. The, the issue is they have to get very specific, but uh, obviously politically it is not uh, – they're not able to say that, you know, we favor an infrastructure approach because that would look like they were favoring China's approach. Mm, so then what do you think are most, uh, you know, promising routes? Um, Increasing the labor participation ratio for female uh, is proving to be quite effective um, because even for today's world, the labor participation for women is just over 50%, but for men, it's over 80%. Uh, a lot of the countries, uh, including China, if they have a higher labor participation ratio for women, usually the productivity growth in services industry will be faster. So I do see uh, more room to be improved there for especially the emerging market. Um, but uh, in general, the declining population globally is an inevitable trend. Investing more in human capital, higher education is certainly the key. Mm. But we have also seen the substitution effect from the higher end of technology. 
and that's also worrying. Mm-hmm. And so, Ina, actually, a recent report by Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, I read, saying that uh, the generative AI, like the ChatGPT, can boost the global uh, GDP by seven percent over a ten-year period. So, what do you think? What is the technological innovation's role in boosting the productivity, and uh, then it will raise the,、uh, you know, the GDP growth, right? <laughs> well, it's、uh, n- never that simple.、Um, I think、uh, Goldman is just、uh, throwing it out there. Obviously, they're in the business of trying to get people to invest.、Mm. Um, I, I don't necessarily、uh, believe. I think it's much more complex. At the same time, you have Goldman saying that. You have、uh, hun- you know, hundreds of scientists and leading tech people who are saying, "Go slow on ChatGPT."、Uh, this is something. It's unexplored areas. There are、uh, parts of this. That need to be controlled and thought out、uh, before we、uh, rush headlong into it.、Uh, unfortunately, I don't think、uh, their statements are going to hold anybody back.、Um, the market is the market, and people, you know, will fill it. So at this juncture,、um, you you can see ChatGPT and AI、uh, now being a direct threat for the first time to the white collar class. Mm-hmm. And this is something new、uh, to everybody. I mean, you know, people who wrote code, people who wrote copy, people who analyze things,、um, uh, architects, engineers, accountants, lawyers—they're、uh, going to, for, for the first time, really feel an impact.、Mm-hmm. And how to measure that? How is that going to affect things? Where will they be displaced to? What kind of skills do they need to get back into? Uh, the economy and being productive, we don't know yet. So I think it's a little premature to forecast massive victory at this point,、uh, or to say that the world is going to end.、Um, it's a it's a journey in the making.、Mm-hmm. A journey in the making. So then, what kind of jobs do you think will be lost by the development of the generative AI, and what will be its impact on the U.S. and Europe?、Uh, the white collar jobs. Are certainly being threatened,、um, because AI can be applied at a relatively low cost. We have already seen large banks using AI to improve backend operations、uh, to assess risks. Risks. Even in China, we have noticed a number of banks、uh, trying to use ChatGPT kind of feature to improve their、uh, background check or、uh, the fast development of new products. So it is、uh, quite scary for a lot of those services industries in the higher end.、Um, for U.S. and Europe, it seems that the labor union is quite strong.、Uh, if the substitution effect has become too strong, and then I do believe they will step in. Uh, we don't know the unemployment situation,、uh, whether it's going to get a lot worse in the future. The productivity will get a lot better, but with a higher unemployment rate, certainly we're not having a better quality life.、Hmm. So, Ina, so do you think will the development of the AI help to really solve the problem of the、uh, shrinking population issue in the world? It's not exactly that, <laughs> that simple,、um, and, and what I mean by that is、uh, shrinking populations do not necessarily mean less economic activity. U.S. four point、uh, a little over four percent of the population consumes twenty percent of the world's、uh, GDP.、Um, it, you, it's, it really comes down to how this is going to be applied, where the profits go.、Uh, one of the big concerns right now、um, globally is. Are you going to see an elite who own、uh, the IP to all of this
uh, ChatGPT, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, further creating this kind of disparity between the have and have nots, uh, especially if they are as productive as we say. I mean, imagine wiping out whole layers of lawyers, accountants, um, consultants, engineers, architects, uh, and, you know, in terms of the cost of doing projects, uh, doing business, um, this would be momentous. But then the question is, what happens to these other people? How do you work them back into the system? Uh, what skills do they have that can be applicable? Because you don't want a large entrenched, what, what formerly middle class, being very dissatisfied because uh, they've been asked to, the only thing they're qualified to do anymore is hamburger flipping. And that even that will probably go away and be uh, replaced by robots. So the question is, we don't know the future um, impact and how this is going to play out. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Ina Tangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. After a short break, we'll take a look at this year's Boal Forum for Asia. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, Economics Professor and Member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. The Boal Forum for Asia was held in Hainan province this week. Two major reports were released to give global leaders a better idea of how to boost the sustainable growth in Asia and the world. The report on Asia's integration said the region's economy could outperform the rest of the world this year with estimated GDP growth of 4.5%. So then, first of all, a lot of issues have been discussed during the meeting of the Boal Forum for Asia. So the stability of global supply chain is one of the major concerns. And so what can the international community do to strengthen the cooperation and maintain the supply chain stability, do you think? Uh, in order to uh, strengthen a cooperation, uh, there is a need to maintain political peace and stability as well. Uh, the inter-regional trade has been quite important for most Asian countries in particular. And many of those countries face competitions from each other. And also there's this trend of industrial relocation. And when we are looking at the current uh, situation of supply chain, it does look like China is still the center of manufacturing. But more and more uh, workers, uh, the companies are trying to outsource more work to broader Asia or even overseas. And that has created this new high initial investment for the business community. And a heightened geopolitical tension will hinder the future collaboration prospects. Mm. So, Aina, let's talk about China's manufacturing industries, including those uh, relocated to South and Southeast Asia. So what are the changes in the supply chain pattern in the Asia-Pacific region, do you think? Well, they're, they're being strengthened. I mean, even though the companies are relocating to these other areas, mainly for labor uh, issues, um, they're still buying component pieces from uh, China. For instance, if you're, you know, if you're doing clothes or shoes or something, uh, the plastics and the cloth is going to come from uh, China, and then it's going to be exported, and then uh, you put it in through your factories to make your finished goods. 
So the strengthening of this is, is very important. And this is what was anticipated by the Belt and Road Initiative, that China would shed uh, those jobs, which were you know, a high labor component, that they could not be uh, competitive uh, doing going forward, but that this would strengthen regional cooperation. So what I see is uh, we, we had a period of globalization uh, which led to, um, you know, basically the rise in all countries uh, in terms of there were, of course, uh, political tensions on there. But now you're seeing it move to regionalization. That's something Dan mentioned earlier. And I, I agree with it. Uh, the world is going to be much more regionally focused. And right now, China is very, very intent on making sure that, um, you know, ASEAN, uh, Asia itself is peaceful and able to trade. Mm. So, Dan, what do you think is Asia's economy's role in today's global economy? Uh, Asia has been the main driving force for manufacturing upgrades, and increasingly the demand in this region is increasing, uh, it is developing as well. Uh, it has become a major market for a lot of the consumer goods, uh, high-end electronics, and high-end services. But comparing to the depth of European and American markets, uh, as a demand destination, Asia is still lacking. Um, but in terms of its supply chain strength, it does look like um, the world is increasing their dependence on Asia rather than a decline of dependence. And this trend has become more obvious after COVID. Uh, and we have seen this uh, grounding of the supply chain in the Asian region um, because a lot of people have thought some of those supply chain can be shifted. Uh, to Latin America or even Africa, but uh, it has been increasingly difficult for a lot of business to move away from Asia. Mm. And then so the spread of the technical knowledge driven by economic globalization has improved the efficiency of international division of labor. However, the increasing politicizing of technology in recent years cannot be ignored. So what can be done to maintain an open ecosystem and promote sustainable development in a technological innovation, do you think? Um, this is a very top-level question um, because when we look at how technology happens, it is usually spread and created uh, through the business-to-business -business transactions. And we have seen the international technology transfer uh, when foreign companies invest in local markets. And if they're for local and be there for the long term, then they have a high willingness to transfer technology and build up R&D centers. And for a lot of the emerging markets, they have benefited from this process tremendously. But over time, we do see that with the China-US decoupling in the high-tech sector, it is more difficult for any company to put all its uh, production uh, in one country or even within a combination of a country. They have to consider alternative supply chain and that can increase their initial cost of setting up uh, the new team and new production lines. And that will hinder the long-term growth of technology. And unfortunately, we don't see a, a declining trend of the tech decoupling. So the business community will have to be smarter and willing to take higher risks if they want to develop high tech. Mm. And as a co-technology product, the development of semiconductor chips has become a focal point of global competition. So then what impact does the competition around the chips have on the global semiconductor industry, do you think? 
Uh, there's tremendous economic cost for the semiconductor industry itself. Uh, we have seen various estimates. Um, for example, the most recent one by BCG, it says that the U.S. companies would lose about 18% of their global market share and 37% of their revenue if the current tax decoupling trend continues. And for China's side, um, there's uh, more focus to develop indigenous innovation capacity. And that also means we cannot use the latest version of chips uh, produced by American companies or using American technology. So that has added to the cost for China and delayed a lot of the development of new products. But also we see the spillover effect to other industries already, since now we're using chips for almost any of the advanced machinery or industrial robots. Um, and for China, it is not a big problem yet um, because the companies being affected is only a few hundred. And for China, we have more than 10 million companies and among which uh, a good portion of it is in high-tech industry. Um, but still, um, for any business trying to go global, it's going to be a big obstacle. Mm. And science, technology and innovation policies have an increasingly significant <laughs> impact on economic development. So that what must be done to promote the international cooperation in the science, technology and innovation so that more people can benefit from it? Um, the civil society is key here to resolve the issue of potential decoupling in academic collaboration and tech transfer. Uh, we need to have a better scheme to uh, develop human resources uh, in the international background. Uh, there used to be more conferences that inviting foreign scholars and business to participate. And now with the reopening of China, uh, we expect uh, the activity can resume. But still, a lot of people would worry about what can happen between China and the U.S., so there's a more conservative attitude uh, towards this kind of high-level collaboration. Uh, there should also be more information sharing. Um, that is a sensitive issue for a lot of developed nations now, since it's regarding the privacy issue, the data security, or even cybersecurity. Um, a better technology might provide more transparency. And I also think a... Uh, better support from the legal system would be beneficial for uh, foreign companies, especially for Chinese companies. We have seen the um, events uh, happening to Chinese tech company in the US and they can use the legal services uh, mm. from uh, the local community to help them gain more support from uh, the bigger public. And that can set up a good example for the future companies that want to do business in the U.S. or have better collaboration. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.